Well, good morning and happy Father's Day, and uh, thanks for being here. And uh, we are walking through the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 6, and so you can get there, and we'll get there in just a moment. And I was struck as I began just praying and preparing for this week of just the power and the potency of that word, Father. I'm going to invite you for just a moment to think that word in your soul and in your heart for just a moment, Father. Here's the thing I know. There are no neutral responses to that word. There is no indifference. There is only, only a response based on your experience. You cannot say that it doesn't matter. I know uh, when I say and hear that word, it stirs in me all manner of things. My biological father was not around. Uh, he bounced when I was five was the last time I saw him. Kidnapped me. I think I shared the story. Kidnapped me when I was five, kept me for three days, and then decided a five-year-old was a lot of work and just dropped me off at my grandparents' house, and I never saw him again. So I had some baggage in my life. I understand those of you who have a response that is challenging to the term father. My stepfather uh, stepped in and did what no one asked him to do, but he was fractured and uh, eventually um, passed away as a result of the culmination of those addictions and things that were in his life. And so I understand those of you who have dealt with pain and dealt with some of the other conditions that a father can bring. And so for some of us, when we, thought, when we think about father, there's pain in it, and it's true, and I feel that. For others, we think about father, and it stirs in us an emotion of sadness because our father isn't here. And maybe it was a great time, maybe it was a tough time, but, but we feel that emotion, and I understand that that emotion's in the room also. For some of us, our dad's sitting right next to us, and we're trying not to make eye contact so we don't cry and get blubbery, and that's awesome, congratulations. And that uh, still stirs in us. So, I mean, there's no neutral responses to being a dad. I remember the first time that being a dad was real for me. It was uh, summer of 2008. Braden had just been born in June, and in July, I had to go two weeks to summer camp. And for the first time, I was responsible for other people's kids, but I actually had a kid. Now, there's a thing about being responsible for other people's kids when you don't have a kid. Like, risk is really measured differently, right? Yeah, that's risky, but that is not my kid, so I don't care if he eats all those raw eggs or does that crazy thing that you, summer camp that you get him to do, right? You just filter the world differently when you're dealing with kids before you have a kid. And then I remember it was, it was the summer of 2008, and I'm at summer camp, and all of a sudden, I've become a guy. I'm no longer the cool youth pastor just willing to do any crazy thing. All of a sudden, I'm the guy like, hey, no, that's not a good choice. Hey, no, you shouldn't do that. Hey, like something switched in me. Some of you will call it responsibility. I don't know what, but uh, someone entrusted me with kids before I had a kid, and I don't know what they were thinking, but it was awesome. We had a lot of fun, a lot of good memories. There's a lot of scars. Chicks dig them. That's cool. But something happened in summer of 2008. I became a father, and I remember I was doing security. Um, I was still young enough to stay up late past the teenagers, and uh, I was walking around, and I was walking with one of the guys that I had brought who was a dad, and I remember 
this moment of terror as I was thinking about my family back home. They weren't with me at the camp and this baby that I had responsibility for. And I realized with terror that I had no clue what it meant to be a father. I had no grid. I had no filter. I had some TV shows, right, that had, you know, some, some beaver cleaver type scenarios in my head and, you know, some other things. But I had no clue. And I remember this overwhelming sense of inability, like I wasn't up for the task. And I remember talking to one of the dads. He was there doing security with me. And I said, I said how, do you, how do you know you can do this? And he said, you know what? You, you, you never know you can do it. You trust God and you do it. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> here we go. And I remember this understanding for the first time that my dependency on God had, had everything to do with how I would father my children, how I would parent them, that I was gonna need to be dependent. I knew I was gonna need some mentors, but I knew I was gonna need some people. Here's another thing that I know is true. In 15 years of student ministries, there is no more powerful moment working with junior hires, high schoolers, period, across the board, than when you introduce them to God, their father. There's a lot of ways to talk about who God is, but when someone gets the picture, when a middle schooler, when a high schooler gets a picture of a perfect father in heaven who loves them unconditionally, breakthrough happens. Breakthrough happens time after time after time after time. It's the reason that 1 John 3 is the, is, the, is the message that comes out of me time after time after time. Whenever you put me around teenagers and we're going to talk about how great is the love that the father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is who we are. There's something about understanding that we're loved by a father. You know, it's interesting as we hit Father's Day, I was really putting this together and I was praying, I was thinking, I was wrestling with all of these ideas about dad and what a dad is. And then I, I recognized something. Actually, someone tipped me off to this and I, and I recognized and I connected it to what we're doing. When it comes to fathers, well, let me back up. When it comes to Mother's Day, we do a good job of just blessing moms. Moms, you're awesome. We love moms. We always love moms. I'm all in on moms. Moms are the bomb. We love moms. Amen. Have some gifts and be dismissed, right? That's Mother's Day in a nutshell, right? Father's Day is always, all right, dads, get your stuff together, right? Isn't it? Father's Day is always, here's what you got to do, dads, to get, you know, to the next level. And I was struck by this sense that oftentimes it feels like this moment to speak almost disciplinarianly to our dads. And I don't want to do that today. I'm going to talk about stuff we can do, but, but, uh, but here's what I really wanted to do. I just want to honor the dads, the biological dads, the stepdads, the mentors who have parented through mentoring, and just tell you how incredibly important the investment that you make is. And thank you. Thanks for short prayers. <laughs> Thanks for caring. Thanks for being there. Thanks for working hard. Thanks for providing. Thanks for protecting. Thanks for coaching. Thanks for enabling. Thanks, 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 thanks. 
Thanks for bringing the thunder when you need to bring the thunder. Come on now. Thanks for realizing you overstepped on the thunder and coming back and making it right. (laughs) Thanks, thanks, and thanks. You know, I was thinking about how when we look at fathers, even in culture, it's so interesting that fathers are often depicted as either bumbling idiots or overbearing or controlling or someone who should be manipulated. I was trying to think of current pop culture, even references, commercials, things that honor dads. And it seems like the culture is just always in a state of dishonoring our dads, men in general, but dishonoring dads especially. And, and for some reason, it's like we have a bullseye and it's the okay class to mock and make fun of and undermine and cut. And then we wonder why we have a generation of young men who don't want to sign up for that job. That don't want to sign up for that job. And I'm struck by that. And what ends up happening are statistics that are staggering. So I'm going to give us some statistics and then I'm going to take us to the word of God. But I want you to hear this. Um, The U.S. Department of Health says 90% of all runaways and homeless children are from fatherless homes. 32 times the national average. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes, 14 times the national average. That's the U.S. Department of Health. I'm just giving you stats. Um, From Justice and Behavior, that's the source, 85% of children with behavioral problems come from fatherless homes, 20 times the national average. From the CDC, the Center of Disease Control, 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. That's nine times the national average. From the National Principals Association report, 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. Three out of four, 10 times the national average. Organization called Rainbows for All of God's Children says 85% of all youth in prison come from fatherless homes. 85% of all youth currently incarcerated, fatherless homes. That's 20 times the national average. So you can see why the inclination is to chastise, to say, dads, we got to do this. We got to step up because there is an epidemic of fatherlessness out there. There's a generation crying out for a father and for a father's love. If you have your Bibles, we're going to jump into Ephesians chapter 6. And if you haven't been tracking with us, that's okay. I'm so glad you're here. Um, This is going to be easy to jump into, but I will give you a little um, context as we get there. We have been walking through the book of Ephesians, and Paul writes this letter from prison. He is currently in jail, and most historians will tell us he's probably in the kind of jail where they just dig a pit in the ground and throw a grate over it, all right? He's not in a very good position, and in that position, he sends word to a church that has sprung up that he spent two years kind of cultivating that leadership, doing life with them in Ephesus. They are his friends. They are dear relational connections to him. He loves them. And from a hole in the ground, most likely in Rome, he writes a letter to encourage them. That's amazing. That's amazing. He isn't say, hey, guys, I'm in the ground. Can you guys come and encourage me? He says, no, from this position, I want to send a letter to encourage all of you. 
And so we have walked through this letter of encouragement. And last week, we talked specifically about this idea of him saying, how do we take this incredible thing that Jesus has done in our lives, this incredible thing of learning how to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and learning to love our neighbor as ourselves, and take that into our most intimate personal relationships in our family. Because here's the thing we tend to do. This is kind of recap from last week. We are really good at taking that and recognizing we need to apply that when we're out in public, right? We get to the grocery store and, you know, we start to lose our lid a little bit and we go, oh, I love my neighbor as myself. Like we will be better to people we've never met sometimes than to people who live in our homes, Sometimes we miss how to take this incredible truth of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then point it at the people who sleep 10 feet away from us, or one foot away from us even. Or maybe with an arm over our face, and we're just like, ah, whatever. And so Paul begins to take this incredible truth of who Jesus was and how Jesus lived and break it into those family relationships. And we spend a lot of time talking about this idea of submission. And some of you are like, oh, S-word, S-bomb, dropped it in church, right? And basically what we talked about was this idea that everything, everything begins with submission. And we talked about what submission is. And that submission was propping something or someone up with yourself. And we talked about how before any of the dialogue between husbands and wives and families and kids, Paul starts by saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that the entire context was submission is I take my time, my energy, my resources, my ability, and I give it to you to pick you up and lift you up. And I do it without an angle. But I also know because you love me, you're gonna take your time, your energy, your resources, your strength, and you're gonna lend that to me and lift me up. And that mutual submission was the context for all of those close, intimate relationships. You want to know who your family is? Ask, who am I submitted to? Who will I give my strength to? Who, when they call and need something, I'll take their call and I'll come and I'll serve, even though there's no angle. Who, that's who your family is. That's who you think your family is anyways. So we talked about that. And then we leaned into this truth that Jesus, right before the cross, when he was preparing all of the uh, 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 final conversations and discourses, the scripture tells us he knew that all authority and all power in heaven and earth had been given to him. And so he took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist and began to wash feet. And we talked about this idea that the most powerful position of authority you could possibly have is demonstrated when you lift and submit to someone else. That Jesus modeled the more power, the more authority, the stronger your situation, the stronger your need to take your energy, your power and your resources and lift someone up. And so we walk that into our husband and wife's relationship. And now we walk it into our children and father relationship. In Ephesians chapter six, beginning in verse one, Paul, he's just continuing his thought. says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. We could just leave that there. 
Honor them, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. And then specifically, fathers, do not exasperate. It's a good word. Your children, instead, bring them up in the training and in the instruction of the Lord. That Greek word, exasperate, it means to rouse to anger or to enrage. And it's a present tense verb, which means that don't do this continuously. Don't continuously do that. Essentially, what he's saying is don't embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. Right? He's saying this is how this looks. Don't be a source of discouragement. Be a source of encouragement. Take your strength, your power, what God's given and entrusted you with. And the way that that submission looks like is you build them up. Doesn't mean you don't correct them. It just means you don't push them to a point of discouragement. Paul is picking apart these intimate, intimate relationships. Now, what's crazy to me is Paul has taken quite a bit of authority to begin talking into families like this. And the thing that you should know is that time and time again, he recognizes that for many, many people following Jesus, he has become a father for them. He's become a father figure. He's stepped up. And I love this because for those of us who have sometimes missed that picture, who maybe you in the early points of this message were like, yeah, that's me. I've been shortchanged. I haven't had that piece, that, that principle of someone else stepping in and stepping up. It's right here in the scriptures. And Paul did this for people. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse 11 and 12, he says, for you know that we dealt for each of you as a father deals with his own children. He says, I interacted with you like a dad who deals with his own children, verse 12. And here's what he did. I encouraged you, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and to his glory. Paul says, hey, that's what I modeled for you. I modeled a father's role and it was encouraging it was building up. It was lifting up. It was comforting. And it was urging you to live lives that were worthy of God. I was thinking about the fact that other people have filled the father role from time to time in my life. Have stepped in and spoken uh, to my life that way. Now, now here's the thing. Um, let, me, let me keep going. 1 Corinthians 4.15, another time that Paul talks about being a father figure. Uh, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 15. He says, even though you have 10,000, which word does it use here? Guardians in Christ. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have that many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Verse 16. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. And here's, here's the thing that just blew me away. Some of us, as we think about that father condition, you know, what the, you know what the definition of the father role that Paul modeled for others was? He said, hey, those of you who are imitating my life, I have become that father role. See, the father role says, I'm the one you can look at and model. I'm the one that you can step into my shoes. I'm the one that you can walk into this life modeling. That's the difference. I love how he says you had 10,000 guardians. Some versions say teachers, right? You've had many people who have stepped up and said, hey, stop doing that. Hey, knock it off. Hey, this is how you do this thing, right? We have tons of teachers, but the father role is the person who says, 
that's not just how to do that. Here's how to live. Here's how to walk this out. Here's how to be who God called you to be. Here's how to hear God's voice and obey. Here's how to live this out. Here's how to model it. And Paul is saying time and time again, I've become like a father to many of you. Why? Because I've said you can model this thing that I'm doing. And I'll take that responsibility. I'll step up. I'll encourage. I will uh, release your gifts and your skills. I will speak that into you. That's what Paul does. With a father, you take the lifestyle. The father's the one who's present, whose behavior is observable, and whose life is emulated. By this definition, many of us still maybe never had a father. Many of us still maybe had a, never had a father. I was thinking about through the entire scriptures, where are some of the great father examples? And I, I was processing, I was thinking about Benjamin. Me might not know who Benjamin is. He was the last son of Jacob and Rachel. And now when Rachel gave birth, when Rachel gave birth, she didn't name Benjamin Benjamin. She actually named him Ben-Oni. And the reason she named him Ben-Oni is she realized she had had a very difficult birth and she eventually is gonna pass away. And so he's born. I think it's Genesis 35. He's born and she says, as she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named him Ben-Oni, son of my pain. But look who steps in, but his father. Come on, dads. His father said, uh-uh-uh, I'm gonna name you Benjamin, which means son of my right hand or son of my strength. You see, the father is the one who says, I'm gonna model this for you. Fathers name things. Fathers claim destinies. Fathers set paths. Fathers leave legacies. The father is the one who looks you in the eyes and says, there is someone inside of you ready to break out. If you trust God, there's nothing impossible for you. That's what fathers do. And I love this picture of Jacob saying, nah, uh, uh this boy of mine, he's not gonna go through his life as the guy who caused his mom pain. He's gonna go through life as the man his father is proud of, who's at the right hand of his father. And he's gonna have strength, not weakness. And I'm gonna speak strength, not weakness into his life. I got sons. I know what it's like. Sometimes I'll grab Mason and he'll be having an emotional moment. I'll just grab him by the shoulders, lovingly, not like, but firm, and I'll tell him, I'll tell him, you know who you are. You're my little lion, right? I said, don't you ever step up to the big lion. <laughs> but you're my little lion, <laughs> and there's nothing that's impossible for you. Daddy will help you. What am I doing? I'm just speaking life, speaking courage, speaking strength. I'm saying, this is who you are. This is who you are. This is who your father tells you that you is. And you know what? He's all five years old and he believes me. And it's getting into his core and it's getting into his soul, who he is, his strength, that he has power, that he has a destiny. He can accomplish what God's called him to accomplish. I love this picture. I love Jacob. Jacob, who's had such a crazy and wild life, looking at his final youngest son and saying, that's not the destiny for you. Some of you have had people speak things into your life that you've been carrying for too long.
And when I get into the presence of the Father, and he says, you're my masterpiece. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. I designed you for a purpose. There's nothing that I've called you to accomplish that you can't do. And you just need to hear the Father's voice tell you that. That's who you really are. That's what a father does. It's incredible when that begins to get released. What's awesome is if you look through the generations who Benjamin becomes, he's the smallest of the tribes. He's the weakest of the tribes in just sheer volume of numbers. But there are some powerhouses that come through his lineage because of who Benjamin is. Ehud, if you don't know who Ehud is, he's tough, rejudges. He's a lefty. He goes on missions to assassinate kings. He takes on the big guys. It's awesome. Ehud's amazing. The first king of Israel was a guy named Saul. You know who a tribe he was from? Benjamin. His great-great-grandpa was Benjamin, the first king. Kings are coming out of his line because a father looked at him and said, you are the son of my right hand, the son of my power, the son of my strength. You are not, come on now, you are not the cause of pain and grief and sorrow. I'm speaking a new destiny over you. Mordecai and Esther, come on. Esther, she was in the tribe of Benjamin. She saved them all. Finally, the guy who wrote this thing that we're talking about today, Paul, he's clear when he kind of gives his credentials. He says, I came from the tribe of Benjamin. Certainly not. I'm an Israelite from the seed of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. That's Romans 11.1. 1. He locks in his credentials and his authority as, hey, I'm connected to that guy. The son of my strength and power. That's amazing. That's the power a father has to speak life and destiny into someone behind him. That's pretty cool. So I was processing this whole entire idea of what it, com- what it comes down to. And, and I want to just give you some keys. The, the, the title of the message today is Fearless, and I haven't even gotten there yet, but I will. Don't worry, we're, we're circling the plane here. But, but I want to give you some keys from this passage about what it takes to be fearless. So, so you know I'm skipping intentionally because I want to stay dialed in on dads. After he talks to dads in, in Ephesians chapter 6, he talks into the social system and structure of that time and essentially talks about how no matter what position you have in society, you honor and respect the people who are around you. You take those same principles of loving God with everything you've got and loving your neighbor as yourself and you plug that in. And then he says, here's how you do it. Verse 10, Ephesians chapter six, verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I wanna talk to you just a moment about strength. Some of us have experienced strength as a way to exert our will on somebody, to dominate. And Paul is writing into a culture. We talked about this a little bit last week, where might makes right. That was as simple as it was in Rome. If you were more powerful, if you were stronger, if you were better with a sword, if you had more resources, more friends, whatever, then you could basically do what you wanted to do. And Paul is saying, hey, In your lives, power does not come from, I'm able to just exert my will on you. That's not power. If you want to know where power comes from, you be strong in the Lord and in his 
mighty power. That's a massive paradigm shift to take into your family. That's a massive, and you gotta think about in Rome, this was a massive distinction. I don't have authority because I outweigh you, and if I hit you, I'll win. I don't. All the power that has been trusted into me is from the Lord and understanding who he is. And the same way he modeled how to use that power, I'm gonna model how to use that power. I'm gonna lift you up. I'm gonna flip this whole entire dialogue and all of a sudden the expectation is on the more power I have, the more responsibility I have to lift up those who are powerless. Whoo! What a massive paradigm shift. This is the kind of paradigm shift that eventually overthrew the entire culture of Rome. People started radically believing that that was strength. The first thing you should take away is that our strength is in the Lord. It's not might makes right. It's our strength is in the Lord. Verse 11, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Second thing I want you to catch is very simple. One, our strength is in the Lord. Two, our battle's a spiritual one, guys. Our strength is in the Lord. And the second one is our, our, our battle is spiritual. Some of us can't get over the physical part of our battles and we get stuck there. And so our strength always comes down to us. Here's how I know that this is true. The last time you got into an argument with someone you love, did you win that argument because your physical strength? If you did, then, you know, we're gonna schedule a meeting and we'll talk about it. That argument, did you win? Is there a win in those arguments usually? Or does that argument resolve when you realize that there is something greater going on here? When you realize that the person that you're eyeball to eyeball with is someone God designed, someone God loves, someone God entrusted you in relationship to, that you not only love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you love your neighbor as yourself. And this person counts in that category. So all of a sudden, even if I have the strength to win physically, my battle isn't physical. It's spiritual. Will I take my strength, my energy, my resources, and will I have the courage to walk into this thing and say, what can I do to help? Ooh, you guys remember that? Or will I say, here's what I need you to do. I trust me, that battle didn't end well if that's how you approached it. Our battle's spiritual, guys. It's between our hearts, submitting with God, and loving the person that he's entrusted us with. If you think that they are your fight, you will always lose. You'll always lose. It ends, most of those fights end when your heart gets right and you agree to be reconciled more than you care about being right. If you'll agree to be reconciled more than you care about being right, you'll be able to move through that. I'm gonna jump ahead to the closing thoughts here because time is getting away from me, but Ephesians chapter six we're going to go all the way down to verse 9. And I love this because Paul has written this incredible letter about encouraging the saints and who they really are and getting a picture of the fact that God's designed you, that there's nothing impossible for God. And here's a picture of how you take all of that and you live it in your day-to-day -day lives. And, and he's encouraging, encouraging, encouraging. And then suddenly he says, oh, by the way, would you pray for me? So when Paul asked for prayer, I'm pretty curious about what he asked for prayer for. And here's what he says. He says, will you pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will 
what's that word right there? Fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it what? Fearlessly as I should. Two final keys and we're gonna wrap up here in just a minute. Our weapons, our weapons, the things that make us strong men, the things that make us strong follower of Jesus are the word of God and prayer. And if you don't understand how to use your weapons, you're gonna lose battles. If you don't have access, if you don't train, if you're not equipped, you're gonna lose battles. Your weapons are the word of God and prayer. Why? Because the word of God introduces you to the person of God and prayer puts you in relationship with God and our power, our battles are spiritual, not physical. So you want access to God, then that's how you get it. I think about it so often when I realize how out of shape I am that I need to push some weights around, but I realize in my spirit, I need to push some scriptures around. I need to push some prayers around. I need to get into the presence of God regularly and make sure that I am strong and fit and ready for battle because otherwise I will make mistakes. I'll try to move in my own strength. Come on now, I'll forget that the battle is spiritual and I'll make it about the situation and the person and I'll lose. Paul says, these are the weapons that you have. So since you have them, will you pray for him? And then I love this. He says, and I want you to be fearless. Now, fearless means confident. It means free. It means openly. Pray that I'll be fearless, that I'll be free. And here's what Paul's worried about. I love this. He's worried about one thing. He's not worried about sin. This is where we get hung up. We get worried that, you know, gosh, I, I'm flawed. I'll make a mistake. I, there's an addiction in me. There's a problem in me. I default. I, things come out of me that aren't good. He's not worried about sin. You know what he's worried about? He's worried about fear. He's worried that he won't have the courage to go to God in prayer and trust him in his weakness. Do you understand that that is the, that is the thing? Sin isn't the biggest problem. Fear is. And the answer to fear is prayer. The answer to fear is understanding who God is and that he's got this. You know why prayer is the biggest thing? Uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14, you guys maybe have heard this, right? It, 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 God lays it out. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and they will pray and they'll seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I'll hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin. I'll heal their land. Prayer unleashes the power of God. Prayer solves the sin dilemma in our lives. It solves the other dilemmas in our lives. But fear is the thing that keeps us from taking it to the Lord. So Paul says, here's the thing I need from you. Would you just pray that I'd be fearless? Would you just pray that I'd have the courage in the moment to not lean into my own strength but to trust God, would you just pray that I would remember who God is, that in my weakness, I'd never just get afraid and miss it. What an incredible, incredible truth. I was thinking about Jesus. I do that from time to time. And I was thinking about kind of his big mission while he was here on earth. And I was trying to sum up, if I could sum up the mission of Jesus, how would I sum it up? And it's easy to point to the cross and the redemption that he provided. But Jesus words it this way. He said that he, everything he does and says, he gets from the Father. Jesus' entire mission was to change the picture we have of God to that of a loving Father. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. He changed the narrative. You look through the Old Testament and we don't have a very strong picture of God as a father, right? He was unapproachable a little bit. He was an authoritarian at some points. He was given boundaries. There was love, but we didn't get a picture of God as a perfect father until we met Jesus. And Jesus said, if you know me, if you've heard me, then you know the father. Guys, wherever your situation is, you need to hear this. You are loved incredibly by a father. When he looks at you, what he sees and the destiny he's spoken over you is so good. He has a plan for you, the scriptures say. He doesn't want to harm you. I don't know if you realize this, but the entire story that Jesus came to reveal to us is that your dad loves you, that you have value and position in the kingdom of heaven, that every single person you go eyeball to eyeball with is someone he designed and cares about. That is incredibly good. That's why we call the gospel good news. What incredibly good news that no matter what your situation is, you have a father who loves you. That is crazy good news. The story that comes to my heart as I think about Jesus revealing that is recognizing no matter what your situation is, God's got this. And that's what a powerful father tells a child. Hey, don't worry, we got this. I took time on purpose to make sure, dads, I let you know how much I appreciate you, but... All of us here, I think, are ambassadors of that kind of love. All of us need it. All of us recognize our need for it. And let me just encourage you in this way. Not only does he got this, he's empowered you. And you got this. And you could step forward into everything God's called you to do. You've got this.